tonight we are going to start the book of Judges. Obviously, Judges is going to start after the death of Joshua. And the first couple of chapters will go through fairly quickly because there's really only a couple of vignettes in there. The rest of it is the cities that they attacked and conquered. And I'm not going to turn this into a map exercise. Although at some point we will, when we get to, for example, Deborah, it will be useful to have a map. So we'll do some map work because there's usefulness in some places for it. Judges is interesting because, as everybody knows, because every Christian preacher in the world talks about it, the end of it is there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And most preachers who teach from that, everybody doing what was right in his own eyes, given the track record of the book of Judges, what happens is Israel goes into apostasy God withdraws his hand from them, and there are all sorts of calamities that happen to them, and they cry out to the Lord, and God raises up a judge who judges them well for some period of time, and then they fall right back into apostasy. So the perspective of everybody doing what was right in his own eyes being an indictment of Israel, I don't entirely agree with. Because once we get to kings, we find we have unrighteous kings. And unrighteous kings not only go into unrighteousness all by themselves, they take the whole nation with them. So having a king, absent it being a righteous king, is in some ways worse than having individual sinners running around with nobody supervising them. Because that leaves room for people who are trying to be righteous and and so forth. Whereas when the king and the government become unrighteous, it takes everybody with it. So I don't particularly take that last phrase as an indictment of a lack of a king so much as that's what people do. It'll say in this first couple of chapters that while the generation in the wilderness lived, Israel did pretty well. They stayed worshiping God. They did what was right in his sight and so forth. But as that generation died off and their children who had not directly experienced the wilderness and had not directly seen the hand of God, those children went and followed after other gods and went into apostasy. The other thing that we're going to see And the very first vignette is going to demonstrate it. God's instructions to Israel when they go into the land, anybody remember what they were? Kill everything that moves. Kill them all. Wipe them out. Don't have anything to do with them. Don't marry their daughters. Don't give your daughters to them in marriage. Kill them all. And what we see very early on is... Israel falls into the same trap that gets Saul. Remember, when Saul goes against the Amorites, Samuel's instruction to Saul is, kill it all. Men, women, children, cattle, sheep, chickens, all of it. Kill it all. And Saul doesn't do that. Saul saves the best of the livestock, 
quote, to sacrifice to God, and he keeps the king alive. And that costs Saul his kingdom. Because Samuel says in one of my favorite Bible phrases in all the world is, what then is this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears? So Saul doesn't do what he's told. He doesn't wipe these people out like he's told to. And that costs him his kingdom. And what we're going to see here in the book of Judges is as the Israelites subdue some cities, they fail to subdue others. The ones that they conquer, instead of wiping them out, they put them under tribute, which is to say, waste not, want not. These are perfectly good servants and slaves. Why should we kill them all? Which is basically the same thing that Saul does. And what that does is it leads them into apostasy, idol worship, and all of that. So from my perspective, the real study in this book, in addition to the various things that you learn in the vignettes, as you learn character and so forth, the basic thing is when God says wipe them all out, he's got a reason. He's not just being capricious. The point here is these people are thoroughly rotten and thoroughly corrupt, and God wants them out of the gene pool. My point is, God has decided he wants these people out of the gene pool, and his chosen instrument to do that is Israel, and they don't do it. And a consequence of them not doing that is that these people then lead them astray into idolatry, into all sorts of abominations, because abominations are sometimes very tempting. So that's sort of the story of the book. So Judges 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who will go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Now, remember, under Joshua, they have conquered the saddle of Benjamin. Everybody knows your geography. There's a ridge of mountains running north and south in Israel, and there's a saddle between Judah and Ephraim that is called the saddle of Benjamin. And that's your major east-west travel route across those mountains. The major north-south route is through Megiddo. The major east-west one is through Benjamin. So under Joshua, they have conquered all of this. So it says Joshua is dead, so they're doing stuff again. For example, one of the things that they'll do is they'll go up against Jerusalem. Well, something happens because David has to conquer Jerusalem sometime later. So verse 3, And Judah said to Simeon his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek, Adonai Bezek being the king, and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. So far, so good. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Notice they have Jerusalem. Now, this is their first mistake, right out of the box. And the business of cutting off big toes and thumbs was by way of humiliation. And, and as Adonai Bezek said, 
When I conquered people, I did that to their king. Then I spent the rest of my life looking at him, scrambling around under the table like dogs looking for something to eat. It was total humiliation. That's not what they were told to do. They were told to kill them all. Now, the fact that Adonai Bezek has been taken out of the gene pool because it's unlikely he's going to be able to find a girlfriend missing his thumbs and his toes is irrelevant. The instructions are, kill them all. What Israel does here is they behave like the rest of the nations. We just conquered this guy. We are going to take the king. We're going to humiliate him, and we're going to have him as a trophy in Jerusalem to show everybody our military prowess. They weren't told to take souvenirs. What they were told was wipe them out. So this is their first mistake when instead of doing what they're told to do, they behave like everybody else in the world. Verse 8. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterwards, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev, in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shishai and Ahimon and Talmud. Notice they've taken Jerusalem. Yet, at the time of David, Jerusalem is a Jebusite city. Which tells me that having conquered the place, they didn't clean it out like they were supposed to. Because you still got Jebusites living there, and by the time of David, they own the city, and David has to conquer it again. So verse 11. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sepher. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sepher and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. I don't know how Aksa felt about that, but that was the way it was done. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. So she is now marrying a cousin. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So this lady is, if nothing, sharp. She goes back to daddy and makes sure that daddy sets her up with a viable chunk of real estate. Both a field and springs to water it with. Obviously a sharp young lady. 16. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad, and they went and settled with the people. city of Palms is Jericho. 17. And Judah went with Simeon and his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephthah and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah, which means destruction. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Notice Gaza, Ashkelon, and so forth. Those were taken under Joshua. Remember the long day when Joshua ran the Philistines down the descent of Ajalon, and he said, need you to stand still for a while, son. I got some more slaughtering to do. 
and the sun stood still until they had finished. These Philistine cities are sort of in an arc around the Negev on the coastal plain. The other thing that's being said here is the Philistines, and I'm assuming these are Philistines, are a military people themselves. And if you look at the topography of Israel, just very briefly, you've got this central range of mountains of the center, and then you've got the coastal plain. And in military terms, the mountains are infantry country, the plains are tank country. So chariots, which were the biblical tanks, can get rolling, and chariots provide shock. What you've got is you've got a horse and a chariot coming charging through your infantry formation. And I want to say developing effective tactics against cavalry was sort of a late thing. I know the Swiss were able to do it. I don't know whether the Greeks did it or not. I don't remember. But basically the tactic to use against a cavalry charge is 18-foot-long spears where you form a wall and you put the spears down and the horse runs on it and kills himself. And what you need is a lot of really grim infantrymen that are willing to stand there in front of a charging horse and trust that the spear is going to take this thing out. Because without that, a charging horse with a soldier either mounted on it or not in biblical times because they didn't have stirrups. Uh, It wasn't until they had stirrups that you had heavy cavalry. Before that, what you had is light cavalry, a la the American Indian. American Indians didn't use saddles and stirrups, so they didn't have the heavy saber-swinging armor cavalry like the United States and Europeans developed. Anyway, the point is, when Judah ran up against these chariots, they being basically infantry, were unable to uh, defeat them. So 20. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. So you still have giants in the land. And of course we have giants at least until uh, Goliath. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So David has to reconquer the city because Benjamin doesn't drive them out. Verse 22, the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them, and the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. Well, Bethel was conquered under Joshua, remember? That was one of a complex of cities that started around Ai. So when they went up and got rebuffed around Ai, Bethel was one of the allied cities. When they took it, they took Bethel. So now the name of the city was formerly Luz, And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. So among all the other pathologies that the Canaanites have, disloyalty is one of them. 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shan. Okay, Beth Shan is up in the Jezreel Valley. It's near the Jordan, that area of the Jezreel Valley. It has always been a fortress because Jezreel is on the invasion route from the Fertile Crescent north down to Egypt. 
So Beth Shan is no small town. It's always a fortress. So Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shan and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Eblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites into forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. You all know Megiddo is the north-south pass through the Carmel Mountains. So that's the place where if you are dealing with chariots and moving an army, you go up the coastal plain through Megiddo, and that takes you into the plain of Esdraelon, or Jezreel Valley, and that place opens up. So you have a choke point where chariots are good on the coast and chariots are good in the Jezreel Valley, but to go from one to the other, you got to go through Megiddo. So not conquering Megiddo is a big deal because that means that Israel is effectively cut in half north and south. And the Philistines or the Canaanites or anybody can move freely from north to south and can concentrate forces wherever they need. Megiddo is a big deal. Beth Shan is a big deal. I'm sure the other towns are too, but those are the ones that I know are offhand. Verse 29, And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, for the inhabitants of Nahal. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. People are a valuable resource. People are what create wealth. So the idea of going in there and just slaughtering everybody, it's sort of like Saul. I mean, why should I slaughter all those good sheep and cows? I can use them for sacrifices and stuff like that. I mean, this would be a terrible waste. And that's what Israel did or failed to do. 31. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Halab or Oxib or Helba or Afik or Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Akko is a poor city, as is Sidon. So those are two major seaports, and not to control those is again an economic blow, if you will, to Israel. 33. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anon became subject to forced labor for them. Notice a pattern here. 34. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Harris, in Aijalon, and Shaalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily upon them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrobim from Shelah and upward. One of the things that we're going to see later on in the book of Judges here, is Dan being unsuccessful in taking the territory that was allotted to them by Joshua. Remember, they cast lots and said, you get this place, you get that place, you get the other place. Dan's place was up against the coast, and they were unable to do it. So what Dan is going to do is they're going to come back, and they're going to go north, and they're going to go to Lachish, which is 
in what is now southern Lebanon in the Bekaa Valley, and they're going to wipe out the city of Lachish, and that's going to become Dan. But that's not the place they were given. And that story is where we have the Levite priest and the concubine and the Benjaminite civil war and all that stuff. That, that's all involved in that story. Chapter 2. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of the place Bochim, which means weeping, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. So at this point, God is a bit ticked with them sends the angel of the Lord, and I don't actually know which angel this is. It may be Yeshua himself, or it may be a messenger like Michael or Gabriel. But one of the things that happens early in the Bible like this is you do have what seems like a porous interface between the spiritual world and the physical world, and you have angelic beings floating in and out and showing up. That seems to tighten up later as the Bible progresses. No idea why. I'm just remarking that in these early stories, you get this kind of stuff fairly frequently. Like, for example, when Joshua was going up against Jericho, and he sees this armed man standing there, and he goes up and says, are you for us or for them? And the guy says, no, I'm the angel of the Lord, and I'm here to take charge. And, of course, Joshua then falls down and worships, which leads me to believe it's Yeshua. Verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works that the Lord had done for Israel. So that's the first generation. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnaharis, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose a generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Camp here for just a few minutes. Remember one of the things that is a fairly strict instruction that gets given at the Exodus is you will teach your children the story. I don't know whether this is biblical hyperbole, which is these people are of a generation that didn't see the wilderness, so those become dads and granddad stories and that kind of thing, or whether they neglected to do what God said to do, because the Jews to this day are very, very diligent to teach their children the stories. I mean, that's what the Seder is at Passover, and they celebrate the feasts and all that kind of stuff. So I, I don't know quite how to take this. It may be, okay, those were just dad's stories, and yeah, yeah, we know the stories, but that was then and this is now. Oh, one other thing I wanted to say. 
Many of you have been here long enough to hear me talk about three spiritual regimes. There are three biblical spiritual regimes. And I call them type one and type two and type three. I mean, there are actually Hebrew names for them. And to the extent that I remember them, I'll tell you, but I don't remember all three of them. So type one spiritual regimes is open miracles. That's what happens in the wilderness. You got the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud in the camp. You misbehave and fire falls down around the edge of the camp. The earth opens up and swallows people. The sea splits. The Nile turns into blood. God is there, pardon the expression, in your face. There is no doubt in anybody's mind that God is real, that God is able to do what he says he will do, and that he will do it when he says he will do it. The flash to bang time is really short. Flash to bang is a military term. When explosives go off, you see a flash, and then you get a bang. And the longer the flash to bang time is, the farther away the explosion is. So flash to bang time really short means you're in the blast radius. So in type one, flash to bang is really short. Israel sins and fire falls down from heaven. So everybody there has a deep, personal, experiential belief in God. When they leave the wilderness, they go from type one to type two. And type two is Israel in the land. And there, things like the rain depends upon the behavior of Israel. So when Israel is doing what God wants them to do, there's rain, there's abundance, they're protected from their enemies, they defeat their enemies, but there aren't very many open miracles. Elijah does one. The sun standing still, that's another one but they're not routine. So in type two existence, God is back a little. And the way I describe it is if you were to be driving around all day with a state trooper in your car, you would be a really good driver. You would stop at all the stop signs. You would never exceed the speed limit. You would signal every time you wanted to make a turn. You would check the mirrors. You, know, you would just do everything perfectly if you had a state trooper in your car as you were driving. Type 1 existence is like driving with a state trooper in the car. Type 2 existence is a little more remote. Now the state trooper is in his car. And you can be led to believe that, gee, I can speed here because I don't see any troopers around. But the state trooper in this case is God. And so you actually never get away with anything, but you have the illusion that you could. And there's some distance. Flash to bang time, if you will, is longer. So instead of fire falling down from heaven, what happens is the rain turns off. It's more subtle. And then type three is what we're in now, which is called hesterpani, which means the hidden face. And that is exile. When Israel is scattered throughout the world, and God still has his hand on him, but it is really not obvious. In fact, the only thing obvious about God's hand on Israel is that they still exist. Because every other nation from that time doesn't exist anymore. Israel continues to exist. They continue to be a people. They continue to speak their language. And yeah, things get really grim for them, but God is watching over them. So that's a type three existence. So the problem that we have here 
after the death of Joshua is everybody who has experience with a type 1 existence is dead. So now everybody is in a type 2 existence. And the flash to bang time is now much longer. So there's time to dabble in the Canaanite religion. Oh, maybe I'll get that cute little Canaanite girl and marry her. And it would be a really good business deal here if my daughter married that Canaanite over there. The presence of God is not quite so immediate in type 2, so what happens is people get lax. And that's what's happening with Israel. So I'm now down to verse 11 in chapter 2. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. Now remember on Shabbat, we just read Deuteronomy 28. And what God promises in Deuteronomy, as well as Leviticus 26, I believe, is if you fall away from me, I'm going to remove my hand of blessing, and in fact, I'm going to turn blessing into calamity, and that's what he's doing. So he is behaving exactly in accordance with the covenant that he made. It's not like, People wake up and say, oh, Shazam, what was that? I mean, they do say that, you understand, but it's not because they haven't been warned. And in fact, in Deuteronomy 31, what Moses is saying is what is going to happen is exactly what is happening in Judges. You're going to turn away from the Lord, and he's going to abandon you. And one of the things that you're going to say, and this is in Deuteronomy 31:17. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured, and many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done because they have turned to other gods. That's what we've just been reading here in the book of Judges. Now, there's two ways you can take this, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us. Way number one you can take it is the way it should be taken, which is to say, oh, we have gone away from God and that has caused all this evil to come among us. I don't think that's what they think. I think is, God, you're supposed to be our protector. How come you're not protecting us, God? This never would have happened if you had been there. And how many times have you heard that in the United States after some kind of a tragedy where somebody prays to God and some snark will say, well, if your God had been there, how come this happened? You ever hear that sort of snark? I think that's what's being said here. God, if you'd been on the job, none of this would have happened. As I say, there's two ways it can be taken. Way number one is we went away from God and this is all our fault. Or way number two is if you had been on the job and remembered your covenant, this would have been fine. And I'm suggesting that human nature is the second reaction. So we are all the way down to verse 16, I think. Judges 2.16. Then the Lord raised up judges 
who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I have commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Back up here in verse 19. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. One of the things I am very fond of saying is no bad idea ever goes away. If you look at the heresies and the problems in the church today, you can trace them back to heresies and problems that go back to the time of Christ or very soon thereafter. And they just get recycled. Somebody new discovers them and we're off to the races again. So one of the reasons that God says you need to clean all these people out, in addition to getting them out of the gene pool, is you don't want to be subject to their ideas. You don't want them living among you and talking to you about their gods and the way they do things. That's part of this because no bad idea ever goes away. Once somebody has it and acts on it, it will spread. And that's just the way people are. So the fact that Israel doesn't do what God said to do is the cause of their problems. And in their defense, I can understand taking all the plunder and putting it in the middle of the town and burning it. That I can get around. But I will tell you, killing every man, woman, and child in a city is really tough duty. That is just not pleasant. And so I can very well understand in human terms not following through on that. I mean, I really can. But as I say, God knows what he wants and he knows why he wants it. And as we see, the results that he predicted are exactly what happened. The comment was that the Lord raised up a judge whenever they moaned enough. He eased up on them, if you will, whenever they moaned enough. And I think... This is Johnnyology, just my idea. God does not want them absorbed into Canaan. He wants them kept as a separate people. So he periodically has to gather them up under a judge and get them sorted out for a period of time because otherwise they simply disperse into the native population, which they didn't take out, which is what's happened to the ten lost tribes. That's a guess. I'm not putting myself in the mind of God. But one of the results of a judge is Israel does stay as a cohesive people. Whereas if it's just, oh, you went after other gods, I'm going to take my hand off of you and see what happens. 
then they become like the ten lost tribes and are perhaps never heard from again. Et ta chama 